Um, the usual format, which will speak for 30 40 minutes. And as I say, we'll finish by half past five. Richard, many thanks for coming. Over to you. Thanks, John. Um, just to fill out, I'm not sure I'll take the, the full 30 or 40, but I, I find that these often work best with questions. I'm sure you've got many because you're journalists enjoying your serene little sabbaticals. You haven't been able to ask annoying and impertinent questions of enough people. <laughs> and uh, I'm here to bear the brunt of that. John talked a little bit about my background. I did spend 11 years with a mainstream American news organization, ABC News. And during that time, first of all, I'd just like to say I'm not here as a representative of Al Jazeera. Up until very recently, we've been doing this story uh, through an independent production company. I'm happy to speak to the uh, you know, issues related to the channel. I don't speak on behalf of the channel. I believe in what the, the network does, by and large. I'm here uh, to talk about what we do, which is cover the coverage. We cover the media. And uh, in all my years of flipping around to the Middle East one day and to Russia the next day and to Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, one always has a certain insecurity, I think, as a journalist when you're expected to be a specialist and an expert in whatever it is that you do, and you always feel just a tad fraudulent when you're parachuting in and out of places. Uh, one of the things I like best about covering the media is this is an area that I know because for the 30-odd years that I've been in this business, even if I've been covering different countries or different stories, I've always been doing media. I've always been learning about the media quite accidentally. And uh, it's a happy uh, set of circumstances that leads me to where I am now, actually covering an area that I actually feel I'm qualified to cover. Um, I first started thinking about the need for a proper media show uh, to cover the coverage in my latter days at ABC News, because when one considers what news covers and the institutions that news covers, and the resources, people, money that they throw at covering other societal institutions, be they health, governmental, education, military, judicial. And then you compare that with the amount of energy and, then, and the amount of resources that they put in covering media. There is no comparison. Which strikes me as kind of odd because to believe that media are the most powerful institution on the planet. I think they're more powerful than any bomb or more powerful than any weapon because most people who, who are in control of bombs or weapons are still running democracies in order to put those armies and militaries into motion. They tend to need to sell the idea, if not in the short term, and certainly post facto, if they want to retain power. The media are there and are they're a necessary enabler in that. I had a front row seat when I was at ABC, 2002-2003, post 9-11, pre-Iraq, to watch some of the failings of what is normally the best, most aggressive journalism, American journalism in the world. And we all, we don't have to go over that chapter and verse. My view is that there was an abdication of responsibility by North American media that has certainly enabled the Iraq War and everything that followed out of that. So it was in that environment that I was thinking, people need to cover this. Now, there are some pretty obvious reasons as to why it doesn't get covered. There's some self-interest involved. There's all kinds of relationships that exist between the BBC here and NBC there and CTV here and CBC there and Time Warner here and with cross-ownership and everything. I mean, who is in a position? 
to cover the news media and to do it in a relatively, and I say relatively because nobody can be completely unfettered, but a relatively unfettered way. And then Jazeera English announced that it was going to launch. I knew some people that were over there, and I went over there with three pages of A4 paper with an idea to do a show, call it the Listening Post, cover the coverage. Now, this is late 2005, early 2006, and um, initially I thought, yeah, maybe it would work at Al Jazeera. And then the more we worked on it and moved into the pilot stage, it became apparent to me that not only could it work at Jazeera, Jazeera is probably the only network in the world that could do a show or that would tolerate a show uh, such as ours. Because Jazeera is largely unconnected, it, it doesn't, its relationship with the BBC doesn't matter the way CBS's relationship with the BBC does. It, it, its relationship with ABC doesn't matter the way the BBC's relationship. It's, it's, an, it's, it's as close as you get to an island in the modern media landscape. And so we've been able to, over the four and a half years where we've been doing the broadcast, I think pretty much done what we wanted to do. We've had one story killed out of, say, a total of 450 feature stories. One story killed in that four and a half year period, and they were right to kill it. It was about this uh, one of these uh, reactionary right-wing Dutch parliamentarians who was making a film about Islam and trashing the Koran and... Nobody was broadcasting it in Holland, and uh, we were doing a story on him complaining that nobody was carrying the film. And then Doha said to us, well, are we the only people who are carrying this story? And if so, why are we doing it? And if there's actually a real news development in the Netherlands, then let's do it. Then. Well, let's not, but otherwise, let's just, put, let's just can it. And I couldn't really argue with that decision. It pretty much allow us to do what it is that we want to do. Now, the other thing that I find that's interesting about doing a media show is that, uh, you know, I've covered politics, I've covered sports, I've done stories on rock bands, I kind of get across everything, at least I did before I started doing this show. And what strikes me about it is the feedback that we get from our audience. We've got like six and a half thousand people on Facebook that are hooked up with us, which is not a huge number, but the level of devotion that they have to the show is extraordinary. I mean, I've covered stuff about hospitals and governments and garbage collection that should matter to people over the years. And yeah, people would walk up to you and they'd recognize you and they'd say, hey, you're on television, whatever. And then, you know, do you know Angelina Jolie? No. Um, now, people who hook up with us over the listening post are excited. They're genuinely excited about what we do. And I tried to figure out what that was about. And I think it's because people over the years have come to feel betrayed about the media that they watch, particularly in North America, certainly in, in uh, the Middle East and many, other play- and many other places. And I remember when I was covering politics, it was explained to me that betrayal is the most powerful emotion that exists in politics. Labor supporters will always hate Tony Blair more than they could ever hate David Cameron. Because they didn't have high hopes for Ken the way they did for Blair. And this war, this, you know, they, they reserved a special degree of enmity for Tony Blair that they could never, ever muster up for somebody who wasn't under their tent. And I think it's a little bit like that. I think it's people used to trust the media. They used to believe in what it is that the media were doing for them. Over the years, certainly, because the Americans are slow learners when it comes to media and informed consumerism, they feel that they've been betrayed. Uh, and 
and, and I tell our interns or our juniors, I say, you know, they say, look at all these people, look what they're writing about what we're doing on the show. We just go out and trash other other media, and they love us for it. <laughs> and I said, you know, and then I explained the betrayal thing to Nick, and, and I said, wherever you go next, whether it's to the Beeb or ITV, Channel 4, or whatever, you're going to have a better job, and you'll get paid more money, but do not expect this kind of feedback, this kind of enthusiasm from your audience, because we're doing something that they feel needs doing because the thing that they believed in, they're having difficulty believing in now. And we cover that, and we see that. I mean, Jazeera doesn't have a whole lot of market research out there on who's watching us, and I'm grateful for that, because that's a problem. Once they get the research and the focus groups and people start interpreting, that's, you know, I've seen that before, and I don't welcome that development. But for instance, in Egypt, our market research uh, on, on all the programs that we do at Jazeera, and we have documentary programs, we have health programs, and what have you, but we've got more than twice as many viewers for the listening post in Egypt than any other program does. And this is because Egyptians have grown media savvy. Uh, they have been for years. The ones who weren't studying it took a crash course over the last few months, and they're very, very interesting. Uh, we look at our numbers in Sri Lanka for our, 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 our YouTube hits. They're like four times as high as anywhere else because they understand that under Rajapaksa in Sri Lanka that, they, that they're not getting a proper version of their news. And so I just think that there's a hunger out there for this and that news organizations, because of their self-serving approach to what it is that they cover and how they don't want to reflect, you know, put the mirror on themselves, are in a way betraying. It's just, I, I just think it's another form of betrayal. But I'm obsessive about the media, as you will learn. Um, we, over the years, I, I, was, I, I can remember when George Bush was heading to the dying days of his, his administration, I thought, well, what are we going to do on the show when Bush goes? And, and we, don't, we don't have Fox News to report on Bush anymore. I mean, we're dead. And, um, and now I'm trying to think, what is it, you know, since the, 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 the Arab Spring started, late in December, uh, I can't even remember what we reported on before the Arab Spring. I mean, it's such a dominant news story. And when James and I were talking before coming out, he said, what, what kind of things should we have? And I said, well, you know, there's this thing I kind of kick around the office sometimes. Why don't we throw this out as the thing? I said, and I, again, I do not do this because I'm here advocating and trying to sell you on out. Just here and I get you to hook up the sky and pay Murdoch some money so you can watch this. But I try to think, has there ever been a media organization playing such a central role in a series of seismic geopolitical developments, as we're seeing today in North Africa and the Middle East. Because whether it's Mubarak or Ben Ali or Gaddafi, they, they're all singing from the same hymn sheet on this. They talk about terrorists in the streets. They talk about, well, in Gaddafi's case, a special hybrid Al-Qaeda drug dealer who's driving this. But they all of it will say, that Al Jazeera is responsible for their problem. And, and, and to me, and you know, the parallels back to 89 and the wall, they're all inexact. Some of them are facile, the comparisons that are made, because this is a completely different world that we live in and it's a completely different area. But it struck me, as I told James, it's a little bit like you know, the presidents or prime ministers of Hungary, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Romania, and all those countries blaming, like, the BBC in 1989. Now, 
the reason it's not an exact parallel is the language thing. Um, Arabic is, of course, spoken by 400 million people. No single news organization could have had the impact on those developments in 89 as Jazeera has today. And when I say Jazeera had, you know, having this, Mubarak is pointing the finger at us, and Gaddafi is pointing the finger at us, and I have to say, it's, they're not pointing the finger at Al-Jazeera English, because we're not a driver on this story. It's all Arabic, and it's unbelievable what they've done and the way it's happened. Um, so is that pre- unprecedented? And so I thought we you know, have that as a starting point. Um, and what's interesting to me, just on the English side of things, is that Al Jazeera, which was being bombed in a, uh, shelled in Iraq and bombed in Afghanistan by U.S. forces, accidental, uh, in sort of 2003-2005, we know that Bush and Clinton, uh, Bush and Blair, discussed Bush's idea of bombing Al Jazeera's headquarters in Qatar, the same country that was hosting Central Command. And Blair had to talk him down off that as recently as what, 2006. And then, about five days into the Egyptian Revolution, you had PJ Crowley, who at the time was the spokesman for the U.S. State Department, tweeting that Mubarak had to put Al Jazeera back on the air. And I just thought, whoa, things have changed. You know, not just the tweeting either, he could have just said it. Hillary Clinton saying on the air a little while later, they're talking about their, their comms push overseas, saying that we're losing the battle in Afghanistan, we're losing the battle in the Middle East, people are watching Al Jazeera English, whether you like it or not, it's real news, and it's not a bunch of people arguing at each other all the time. That's as much as I can really say about English on this. The rest of it's been Arabic. But it's been a very big story, obviously, for English and the possible growth in the North American market, which I don't think is going to happen anytime soon, even though they're sending me to D.C. to try to do something about that in a couple of weeks. Because Al Jazeera did not act alone on this story. Al Jazeera Arabic, none of the media that were covering these stories acted alone. And, and to me, the most exciting thing for me as a journalist, the most dangerous thing for any politician who is not particularly fond of democracy is the whole social media aspect of this. Now, unprecedented is a word that is used a lot in the media. I did it just a few minutes ago, possibly incorrectly. But people were sitting back saying, oh, what we're seeing is absolutely unprecedented out of Tunisia. Look how all these pictures come in. Here, here come all the social media stuff. All that stuff's coming out of Egypt. Unprecedented. Mark Lynch, who's an American uh, media analyst, a smart boy, speaks Arabic, probably the best analyst of Arabic language media that I've ever dealt with. He said, actually, the development here in the Arab Spring is not on, the, on so much on the side of the masses producing social media, video, producing raw news material for news organizations to then deal with. The real, the, because, the, because people were doing that in the summer of 2009 in Tehran. And you'll remember after the election, uh, there, was, there was oodles of stuff coming out of the streets because the Iranians are very, very blog savvy, have been for many years. They kind of lead the Muslim world in that. But what Mark Lynch said is that what has changed since then is the agility of the mainstream media and their ability to respond to this material because what this, what this stuff needs and what journalists will always be necessary for, and there may still be jobs for you when you leave here, uh, is there's a need to collate and there's a need to contextualize. And the media weren't really ready 
in the summer of 2009. They hadn't developed their iDesks or their web desks or they, they didn't have mechanisms within that would turn around, take this raw material, contextualize it, put it on their air, get these people to then get the refined version of the raw material that they had sent and then forward that. And now you're just, it's just one of these it's like a nuclear reactor. It's just feeding and drawing energy from a place that we never realized we provided before. And that is an exciting development, obviously. And to me, one of the real stunning sides of this is the learning curve. Because we've been speaking to, you know, we've been across the Arabic language blogosphere. Egypt has been very active since 2004, 2005. Then they started to clamp down again in 2007. They were known to be the noisiest blogosphere in the Arab world, politically speaking. Uh, but the Tunisians were always active. And we just didn't really pay much attention to that because they're blogging, you know, everyone's either blogging in Arabic, but their second language there is French. The French knew about it. But we weren't really paying attention. I remember seeing a few videos in like 2007. But the Tunisians got out front with that. They were always active. The Egyptians, they were on it right away. And then they took advantage of their window. And then everything that's been well documented followed. And we were speak I've been speaking to web activists in London and and uh, DC, and these are the kind of people who have been trying to just stoke the fires in these countries and to see if people who could be politically active in a pro-democracy movement, if they could use a little help, you know, can, what, what, what programs can we get you? What can we send you to help? And 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 one of them told me that that for the last five or six years, he was digging a dry hole in Libya. He said Lib Libya was a digital black hole for us. We had people everywhere. You know, we might have had only four or five people in Yemen, but we had nobody in Libya. There was nothing there. And so he was telling us, and this is before Libya started, that he didn't really see Libya happening. He, he wasn't optimistic um, as a pro-democracy activist. And what happened is that the Libyans, in the space of six weeks, went to school on what happened in Tunisia and Egypt. They had no on-the-ground tradition. They had no cyber infrastructure, which the Tunisians had been building since 2001, 2002. They had nothing. They were ground up in six weeks, and there was a civil war. You know? That's because everybody's got a phone. And they, they don't have to be, you know, surf geeks like me. They just need a phone, and they just, just need a place to send them stuff. Six weeks. And that is the scariest thing about this, I think, if you're a politician. You may think that you've put a lid on everything. And you, you know, China's got 33,000 internet police, which is roughly speaking the same number of police there are actually in New York City, as a coincidence. Um, but it's like the rules have all changed. And I think the Chinese, who clamped down hard in the two weeks after Egypt, you know, from their perspective, were absolutely doing what I think, but they don't know where to go, they don't know who to chase. Now we've got this Bin Laden story. One of my favorite things about it is that one of the things that really made the Americans look particularly seriously at this villa in Abdabad is the fact that there was no internet connection to it. And then no telephone connection. So it used to be that if you had an internet connection, you were suspect. Now if you don't, you're suspect. And if I was an investor in Pakistan, I would invest in AOL Pakistan. 
right now because I think everybody who doesn't want a drone over their building <laughs> needs to get hooked up. And you know, dial-up's not going to work because the next level is going to be what you've only got 64k. Who are you trying to kid? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. I, I just I think it's just it's just wild what's going on right now. Um, anyway, so those are some of the the, the lessons that. That, that I think we're learning from um, North Africa primarily in what we do. Uh, and the other thing that Jazeera is finding is that we have you know, created some high expectations on the part of our audience. I mean, I remember 90 minutes into the first Egyptian demos, which were on a Tuesday, the Tuesday after the Tunisian Friday, we were being bombarded by emails, tweets, and everything. And about 90 minutes after they started, for Jazeera not being on this. Like, what is the problem? Is there a conspiracy? Are, you know, is Jazeera in Mubarak's pocket? 90 minutes in. I mean, it used to be two or three days, you know, a little, not enough coverage. People would jump up. 90 minutes. They're on our case. And I'm like, I'm phoning Doha saying, our people are beating us up here. And they're like, hey, we're getting there. You know, we're kind of busy in Tunisia. And I was like, well, this is the schedule for Tuesday. We, we should have seen it coming. Uh, we get beat up for Bahrain. We had to do a piece a few weeks ago because, you know, our viewers on Jazeera, one of whom went on our air saying, look, there's a new media maxim in the Arab world that it's not on Jazeera, it's not news. And that's something you guys have got to live with. Um, they say that we haven't done enough coverage on Bahrain. We went out and did a story on that. Because I just think as a, as a media show, we have to do that. Um, people still aren't satisfied with it. Some of them think that Qatar is too close. It's a GCC country to Bahrain. And so we went out and did a story. We said, well, actually, here are the complaints. Here's the rebuttal from Jazeera. But the fact of the matter is the Bahrainis are playing a very interesting game. They will let the BBC in there. They will let CNN in there. I mean, they'll, they'll blanket CNN with minders, as they will with Frank Gardner at the BBC. But they won't let us in there now. They've thrown us out. They will not let us in. But they know that they need Western media in there to maintain Western support and sympathy. You know, But they will not let Al Jazeera in there. Now, can Jazeera be doing a better job dealing with the social media stuff that's coming out of there? Arguably, yes. Because we weren't in Tunisia either at the outset. Nobody was in Tunisia. You know, we had seven teams on the ground in Egypt because Mubarak never tried to shut out the mainstream media. He tried to kill our means of distribution. He tried to take us off Nilesat. He tried to knock us off Nilesat. So if you went on Jazeera's website at the time, it's, it's, it's not there anymore. Just underneath this picture here, there was something I'd never seen before on, on, on a news organization's website, you had satellite coordinates. <laughs> Al Jazeera is experiencing difficulties. And, uh, and you know, try us on Nilesat, try us on Arabsat. So you've never seen that before. But that's because, you know, the people who controlled the satellites felt that they could control that end of the funnel and stop the, the signal from going out. Um, and just, just a quick anecdote. Uh, one of my favorite things about Al Jazeera's history is, um, as many of you know, the BBC and the Saudis got together in '94 to try to put out that uh, joint venture that was never going to work um, for ideological reasons. That crashed, and a bunch of people went to something called Al Jazeera. I remember Palestinian producer Vars in Jerusalem saying, Richard, you've got to watch this channel. It's going to change everything. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, Arab world reporting, yeah, yeah. And, and it did, but they had distribution problems initially because the Saudis controlled Arab side. Yeah, 
they, they controlled Arabsat. And there was actually, there was no room on the transponder. Uh, and there was a channel called Canal Plus, uh, a French uh, overseas uh, imperialist channel. And uh, it was on uh, the satellite. And one night, a technician in um, somewhere, I think in Marseille, uh, is playing out the show that's going out on Canal Plus, and he's playing an old, um, a private video for himself, uh, a video that um, my father used to refer to as an educational film, slightly risque, involving a uh, chambermaid. And he flipped the wrong button. And, Canal, and, and on Canal Plus's signal, there was hardcore pornography on Arab Sats Air. And, of course, the Saudis, as the guardians of the holy places and defenders of Islam, couldn't deal with that, killed the French channel and put Jazeera on the air. And that's kind of how it all started. So we have roots. <laughs> I wouldn't say roots. Connections to educational films in France. Um, and so it's funny now that you, know, you see this satellite stuff. I think one of the larger picture issues that we keep running into on the listening post that kind of relates to what's happening here is um, the state-funded media thing. I mean, I come from Canada. We have a tradition of state-funded broadcasting, public broadcasting, the CBC, which I never worked for because I never wanted to work for them, but I always would watch. I always worked on the private side. And you've got a great tradition here of that. Uh, BBC now looking at, what, 16% across the board cuts, which I think is criminal in a splintering media environment at a time where we are watching Jersey Shore and fake reality shows. For me, this is not the time for governments to take money away from public broadcasting. I think it's the absolute worst thing, but that's the way the pendulum is swinging. And, and, uh, and Jazeera. Jazeera could not have 75 overseas bureaus to CNN's 33 overseas bureaus to CBS's four overseas, overseas bureaus. CBS, the network of Cronkite and Edward R. Murrow, had now has four overseas bureaus. And it's stunning. Jazeera has 75. We bought six new flyaway dishes last year. I, I said, why'd you buy them new? You should have gone to CBS and bought the news. They're dumping them. The private, net, private media getting out of the news business, just not having the good manners or decency or honesty to tell their viewers that. And Jazeera steps up, and for something like whatever it is, $200 million a year, which is chump change for the Amir, uh, sitting on all that natural gas, is changing the world. And I don't get why Bill Gates doesn't do this. I don't get why Carlos Slim doesn't do this in Mexico. I don't get why they don't just, for $200 million a year, preserve the integrity of news broadcasting in North America or in other parts of the world. So $200 million I think so. I think $200 million operating, I think. Is it low? Well, what, what's, like, like Telesur is like 75, isn't it? Teddy Yeah. I thought, I, I thought we were twice. Maybe I'm thinking just Jazeera English. Maybe Jazeera English. Yeah. As you'll find out later, numbers are not my thing. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I kind of think back to it as well. You know, and, and if you're a Jazeera person, you know, Jazeera, in, starting in 96, provided the Arab world with their first ever non-state run broadcast option. That's why the channel took off, even though it was state run, but from another state. Um, I just happen to believe in state funded media. I just, you know, uh, and I'm not a, di a dyed in the wool lefty, but, and, and it also strikes me because 
you know, if you think back to 2001 to 2003 and what was happening, a lot of people are critical of the BBC, saying that the BBC rolled over too much on the Iraq war. But you know what? The BBC had Andrew Gilligan. The BBC had um, Paxman. And they were asking questions of Blair and other people that the Americans were just not getting from their big, bad private media. And had I told you in 1989, when the wall was falling, that in 15 years' time there would be an Anglo-American invasion of a Middle Eastern country, which, strictly speaking, kind of looks like a war crime, uh, had I told you that the big bad U.S. media, independent media that gave us Watergate and gave us all this great Pulitzer Prize-winning reporting, that that beast would roll over and become part, well, at least complicit, you know, uh, to put it diplomatically, of a war effort, and had I told you that at the same time, the state-funded or state-licensed state and taxpayer-funded broadcaster in the United Kingdom would end up at least partially at war with its patron government over that same war, you would have told me then that I don't understand the first thing about the public or private sectors and how they work. I believe in it. I believe in state-funded media, and I think as media continues to splinter across the board because of new economic models, Hundred or 5,000 channels, whatever it is today, the internet taking food and money off all of our tables. Um, I just happen to think it's going to be the last bastion, the last preserve of quality journalism. I think it's got to be subsidized by somebody, and it might have to be us, and I, I happen to believe in it. And the last point that I'll make is that in a couple of weeks, we're going to, I'm going to DC, Jazeera's doing a forum, and they want to do something on the Arab uprisings and lessons for other media. What have we learned? from the Arab uprisings. And I'm, they wanted to pan, I chair this panel, and I'm not being a very much of a team player when I tell them, I don't think there's a whole lot that Western media can draw in the way of lessons from what's happened in places like Tripoli or Cairo. Because I, I, the way I see it, you know, that the media space in those Arab countries wasn't particularly well-developed. These were state-run organs that showed us you know, six minutes of voiceover at the top of each newscast of Gaddafi's wives or one of them snipping a ribbon, opening a new mall. Uh, 22-minute voiceover on a trade delegation from, from the United Arab Emirates. It wasn't real news. And people knew they had Jazeera or maybe Arabiya or maybe Al-Hurra, the uh, American outlet. But it's a completely different media scape. Though. And I think that well, you know, I think we'd be wrong to go into the United States and say, well, you know, Zero's covered this, history is, has been made, and look at this model of, uh, of social media, which is hugely important, providing raw materials that we then refine. I don't, think it, I don't think that applies to the United States. I don't think it applies to Great Britain. I think if you're Lukashenko, you're scared to death. I think if you're, if you're with the junta, in Myanmar, it applies. I think in those kinds of places, it doesn't. I think the web, when it comes to politics, in more developed media environments, does different things. It gets Barack Obama organized. It helps Obama fundraise. It can knock down some myths some conventional wisdom that's being spouted by traditional media. But I don't think there's anything in the Arab Spring that we in the UK really can learn a great deal from. But if I'm in Minsk or Rangoon, I'd be paying attention. 
because if they can do it in Tunisia, if they can do it in, Lib in Libya, and take a six-week crash course in how to bring down a government, then I think it can happen in a lot of different places. So that's all I have in the way of opening remarks. And if you have any questions, I'd be happy to take them.